everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former senior U.S. intelligence officers. And today, I have a really special guest. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome back Norm Rule. Norm is a business consultant on Middle East uh, political, security, economic, and energy issues. More important, he's a retired uh, CIA uh, director of operations officer. He's been a division chief, a deputy division chief, chief of station, had about 15 years of uh, service overseas. But most relevant for today's conversation, he was the national intelligence manager for Iran from 2008 to 2017. Norm, welcome back to AFIA Now. Thank you very much, Jim. It's a real pleasure and honor to be with you. Okay. Norm, the topic today, of course, is Iran. And there has been another recent round of fairly serious uh, anti-regime uh, demonstrations in Iran. But Iran has had uh, demonstrations before in the past, as you well know. Is there any difference between this series? Uh, and if so, how are they different? It's a great question. And uh, they certainly are different, but they need to be seen in the perspective of recent protests as well. I always begin by saying that in discussing events in Iran, we ought to have some humility. If we can't quite predict our own midterm elections, understanding how politics works in a denied environment is a lot tougher and sometimes lost on people. Uh, uh, if I, getting some bottom lines up front, I would say the, the current demonstrations do not yet appear to be a threat to the regime, but this is far from over. The um, uh, unrest is widespread in dozens of cities, uh, often uh, focused on universities um, in the southeast and in the northwest where there are some ethnic tensions. Iran is in, I think I can say, a pre-revolutionary phase. That's a fairly dramatic comment. But this is a phase that could last for a very long time, and it could be squashed. As I mentioned, it's different because we're watching Generation X take charge of these, this, these demonstrations. Young, uh, mainly women and girls, but often supported by young men from colleges. But I think it's important to look back and say this is just one more segment of Iran's population, which is rising up against the regime. We saw that in 2009, stolen elections, and then in 2014, 17, 18, 20, and even 22, when you had food prices. So you've seen different parts of Iran's society that, have, um, that are rising up. What I think is also different is, uh, although we've seen it in previous demonstrations, is that you're watching real anger against the regime and the barriers of root crowds routinely calling for the death of the supreme leader, for the death of certain other uh, major leaders. Uh, that happens with a frequency that at one time would have been unheard of. Is the aging leadership of Iran increasingly out of touch with uh, Iran's younger generation? Well, that's a good question. I think we need to begin by uh, talking about that aged leadership. The supreme leader of Iran is 83. He has health issues that have bedeviled him for a number of years. People have predicted his death for a long time. I predicted one day he will die, and I will stand ready to have the statue put up in my honor. I predicted Castro and uh, as well pass, would pass one day. But there are other aged leaders who are defining the country. There's a fellow named Ahmed Janati, a friend of the Supreme Leader, who runs the Assembly of Experts. That's the organization that chooses Supreme Leaders and manages them. And the Guardians Council. Janati is the head of each of the organizations. He's 95. And I think his number three in the Assembly of Experts is a spry 92. So if you looked at Iran from that perspective, you would say, my gosh, these people are really old and they just don't get it with the generation that's in their 20s. I think that would be a mistake. 
Because if you looked at the people who actually run Iran's government, they're all in their 50s and 60s for the most part, and even quite younger. Uh, the president of Iran will be 62 in December. The, the secretary of the, uh, their National Security Council, uh, Shamhani, is 67. The head of the IRGC, the MOIS, they're 61, 62. The minister of finance, I think, is, um, I think he was born in 1980. Uh, is younger than me. So the government itself, the next generation of Iran's leadership, is actually uh, uh, not very old. But that doesn't mean they're any less disconnected with different elements of the government and uh, uh, different elements of the population. And they're not able to satisfy a population that sees how, how well people live just across the uh, Gulf in the um, Arab G GCC, the Arab Gulf states, or in the rest of the world. And they're tired of living in an environment of constant uh, economic and social oppression. Most of Iran's population was born after the revolution. Most most of Iran's population doesn't remember the Iran-Iraq war, but they do know life since, uh, say, 2001. And that's a, that's a life without a lot of hope. And this government is just not connecting to them, giving, offering them that sense of hope. Is the influence of the MOIS uh, and the IRGC likely to diminish? No. And I think that's, a, that's something else that people often don't quite grasp. Beginning about uh, 20 years ago, the IRGC and the MOIS began to play a much larger role in Iran's private sector. Now, they'd always had a role in Iran's private sector, particularly the IRGC, which was allowed to engage in certain uh, commercial activities to sustain its budget. But beginning with the administration uh, of Ahmadinejad around 2005, there was a, an acceleration of particularly the IRGC's involvement in different sectors of Iran's economy. And this is a sectors that dominate the entire country, telecommunications for one. The IRGC, in essence, bought the entire telecommunications and internet system in 2009 through a shady stock deal. At the same time, you had, you had over the last 20 years, MOIS and IRGC officers who would retire out of their organizations. And just as in the United States, retired intelligence officers go into other businesses sometimes, these individuals percolated throughout Iran's private sector in ways that allowed them to draw upon networks of fellow intelligence officers. It's a very corrupt system, uh, but also to draw upon their own new private sector uh, roles to support IRGC and MOIS private sector initiatives, front company initiatives. It's really a quite a broad control of a society. So, if the Supreme Leader were to die tomorrow and Ahmed Jannadi were to crawl in the hole with him, these guys who are left behind have a structure where they're going to draw upon each other to sustain this new social environment of IRGC and MOIS professionals. Norm, what's the significance of Iranian support for Russia in the war with Ukraine, particularly providing both missiles and drones? And are Iranian surrogates likely to take part in the fighting? It's, it's, it's a big deal. And I think it's a bigger deal than people realize. So first, what we're looking at is a, a series of Iranian drones have appeared in the Ukraine conflict. These are the Shahad-131 and the Shahad-136 series uh, drones. These drones have been involved in actions in, uh, against Saudi Arabia from Yemen. We've seen some attempted use against Israel. We've seen some of this in Iraq. These are tested drones, older drones. 
Initially, the Russians used these drones for um, battlefield purposes. Uh, they're known as loitering munitions. They sort of hover around an area until they see a target and then dive in and, and destroy it. More recently, since October, they've been using these uh, drones to attack the electrical systems of Ukraine, which shut down not only the electricity for the civilian population, but water supply. So at least some part of that is a war crime. They've been used in very large numbers. And we have the U.S. government uh, uh, stating that there are IRGC officers involved in uh, uh, training and directing some of these operations from Crimea. So why should we worry about this? Well, first, this means that Iran is getting something from the Russians in return. They They have already had a Russian diplomatic support for many years. Russia has blocked every action in the United States United Nations Security Council against Iran for 15 years, uh, ranging from uh, weapons to proxies to an attempt to kill then Saudi Ambassador to the United States, Adel Jaber, et cetera, et cetera. So this cements Iran's uh, diplomatic uh, relationship with Russia. But it's more than that. Iran has gained some money, probably in excess of $100 million. There have been reports of Western battlefield technology captured by the Russians passed to the Iranians to reverse engineer But I really think the most significant thing the Iranians are getting from this is it's a battlefield laboratory where they're able to watch their drones being used in a way that they've never had to, they've never been able to see. So in Saudi Arabia or in Lebanon, these are uh, small numbers of drones uh, being fired against a, a fairly effective air defense system. In Ukraine, you're watching large numbers of drones being fired against first world air defense uh, systems. And, and, And this is in a very concentrated and focused manner regarding the target sets. So I think, I think we've seen as many as 200 drone attacks. Uh, during a period of time in in Ukraine. And this saturated use of drone uh, operations is something that I'm confident we're going to face here, or rather not uh, U.S. forces will face in the Middle East. But I think other actors are watching how this plays out. And we're probably watching the new way of war. Large drone systems are being used now, but technology being what it is, those drones will become smaller and more precise. And I think we should have a real concern that what the lessons Iran is gaining on its drone use here, they will apply to attacks on oil infrastructure in the Middle East, American military forces, uh, ships that transit the Babel Mandab or the Arabian Sea or the Red Sea. I think that's the worst the worst of it that Iran is, that, that we should worry about, that Iran is going to become a more potent form of, of devilment for uh, Western uh, military operations. Norm, as we both know from our careers, the Iranians are very adept at using surrogates. And the Russians have been uh, suffering some fairly significant battlefield losses in uh, the fighting with Ukraine. Is it likely that we will see Iranian surrogates more directly involved in the fighting? It's possible. I confess, um, or or rather I should admit, I'm not an expert on the population of Russian drone operators and how that's been impacted by the the ongoing conflict in terms of their capacity or their 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 training or even their deaths in in military operations. Uh, traditionally, Iran has played only a modest role in operations abroad. They often do stay close to the front, like uh, Russian generals. For that reason, we you've seen a lot of Iranian generals die in Syria. 
And occasionally we've had reports that the Iranians on the scene would, in essence, tell their proxies, look, look, idiot, this is how you do it. And they go in and they do it and then they get killed. And they've been uh, there's been video of this that is that has come out of Syria. It's conceivable you will you will see some of this in Russia, but I just don't know that number. Uh, when it comes to the Iranians involved, another another fact to be thrown out is that uh, we often look at Iranian operations overseas as the bailiwick of the Revolutionary Guard Corps, the Quds Force. And this is this is no longer the case. And that's important as we understand how sanctions should be put against Iran by the United States or the European Union. The IRGC as an aerospace component outside of the Quds Force, they're now heavily involved in this. So if you want to declare the IRGC a terrorist organization as a whole, which it is, it's no longer just the Quds Force involved in terrorism. There are these other logistics elements, um, uh, aerospace elements, finance elements. But there's more. Iran's traditional military, the Artesh, had the mandate of defending Iran's borders, and the IRGC would conduct its own mischief abroad. That changed a bit in Syria. And you'll notice that the EU and the U.S. sanctioned two senior officers in Iran's traditional military. So we're now looking at a transformation of Iran's entire military elite into something that is much more involved in promoting chaos and civilian deaths abroad. We shouldn't ignore the fact that Iranian drones have killed Ukrainian civilians, just as they've killed Yemeni, Syrian civilians, and civilians from many other countries. But Iran's role with in, inside of Russia is changing. It'll be a little broader than the IRGC. I think you'll see more exchanges with the traditional military as well. Norm, with that in mind, how does all of this impact the joint comprehensive plan of action? Uh, well, I think the joint comprehensive plan of action has long been dead. Um, the, the strategic drivers that made that possible in 2014 and 15 have been ab absent. That doesn't mean we can't have some kind of a nuclear deal. But we in 2014 and 15, we had great power unity. We had a multilateral approach against Iran. Sanctions at the time were considered to be grinding in the highest they'd ever been. There was a belief that the U.S. would undertake military operations against Iran if they moved into certain areas, such as metallurgy, increasing 20 percent enrichment, let alone 60 percent enrichment. There was a belief the Israelis would undertake action in, in that regard, and that we had much closer relations with the Gulf states at the time. Those are all absent. And I think what has happened is uh, JCPOA was an example of instead of the United States taking its position and working with the Europeans to bring that position to the region, we adopted Europe's position. And that is a non-coercive, endless diplomatic position. And the Iranians use that to develop facts on the ground. So this very week, some unusual things have occurred, and they're important. The International Atomic Energy Agency is having its routine meeting of the Board of Governors. Unsurprisingly, just as the swallows come to Capistrano uh, with great predictability, the Iranians approached the IAEA and said, hey, I know we've had disagreements in the past, but we're ready to talk. Why don't you, why don't you chat with us in an effort to delay that condemnation? The IAEA um, response was, um, after some preliminary discussions, the Iranians aren't serious. The IAEA would need considerable time if 
its access were restored, which doesn't look likely, but if restored, it would need considerable time to once again be confident Iran has a peaceful program. It's a really important fact because for the first time, or maybe the second time, the IE is saying, we can't say Iran doesn't have a military program. That's not insignificant. And last, you're you're watching a situation where I don't think anyone thinks that if the, the, the Board of Governors were to condemn Iran and even push the Iran case to the UN Security Council, that Russia would stand with the United States for some sort of a, a significant pressure on, on, on Iran itself. So if you're Iran, you've got a great position and your job is to build facts on the ground, which is what they're doing. The amount of 20% enriched uranium for which they have no, no use uh, is the highest they've ever had. The amount of 60% enriched uranium, which they have, for which they have no use whatsoever, even no conceivable use, grows each period by which things are measured. I do not believe Iran is weaponizing its nuclear program yet. I think that they probably realize that the entity or entities that were involved in removing uh, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, Abu Mehdi al-Mohandas uh, uh, and Qasem Soleimani, uh, Abu Muhammad al-Masri and other people with great precision inside of Iran. And the Israelis, uh, I can talk about that, discovered the nuclear cache and were able to spirit that out. I think if you're Iran, you have to think if we start a nuclear weaponization program, it will take us some months to progress. And the same people who apparently were able to do that might try to do something else, and that might involve me. So what I think that 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 tells us is that if that's the case, then Iran is likely to move towards a nuclear weapons capability because it buys it a lot. It buys it just the threat of if you press me on regional actions or terrorism or something else, I'll make the dash. If you do sanctions, impose sanctions that are really incredibly difficult for me to handle, I'll make the dash. I think that's a bit of a shield for the Iranians, but I don't think they'll go for a weapon yet. But again, we should have some humility on that. Uh, we're in a very dangerous place because diplomacy has, in essence, had no coercive element to it and still may not. If the Iranians choose to do something that in the past was seen as crossing a red line, Will the West respond with truly significant sanctions or a military strike? And I think that's an open question. One more thing, I'd like to touch on the issue of sanctions because it, touch, it addresses both the nuclear issue, but also Ukraine and human rights, et cetera, et cetera. There are three types of sanctions that you can impose upon Iran or any country. The first is it, these sanctions, a type of sanctions that touches the supreme leader and the people around him. And you have to think of something that is so strategic and seismic that it reaches that top level. Think um, closing off the Strait of Hormuz, closing off Bandar Abbas, uh, uh, ceasing all air flights out of the country, something that significant. The next level of sanctions are sanctions which are corrosive and erode capability of organizations, denying the metals they need for basic industries or for dual use capacity with their security forces or their nuclear program, et cetera, et cetera. The last form of sanctions is the equivalent of uh, Iran sanctioning Jim Hughes and saying, Jim, any money you've got in Tehran, we're gonna freeze. Any investments you make in Tehran, we're gonna deny. And you can't travel to Tehran in the future. Well, it's, those are un, it's pretty unlikely. That that's going to happen. Makes us feel good, sends a nice message, and tells everyone else you may not want to deal with Iran, 
But those that last basket of sanctions doesn't shift Iran's behavior if they think they can outlast us. And that's what the West has traditionally focused on in response to Ukraine, humanitarian issues, unrest, and the nuclear program in recent years. And I think we're watching that impact. And that means we're going to see more violence against Iran's civilians. They're going to build up their nuclear program and likely provide Russia with uh, short-range ballistic missiles because they believe the cost is just nothing we have to worry about. Norm, you've just returned from visits to uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, where you attended several conferences and uh, spoke with a number of senior leaders. What impressions did you derive from that? And is the leadership of uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Do they feel more threatened at this point? Well, the threat profile has increased because the ceasefire with the Houthis is over. At any moment, God forbid, perhaps even while I'm speaking, the Houthis may decide to fire drones or missiles against Saudi Arabia, as they've done hundreds of times in the past. The Saudis uh, and the Emiratis have, um, knock on wood, exceptional air defense capabilities, really quite impressive. Um, They've had a high success rate, but they've also had uh, these drones and missile strikes, civilian targets that have caused uh, at least, uh, I think about a dozen civilians have died from various countries. Uh, The Houthis traditionally strike only civilian targets or energy targets. They avoid military targets because they're looking for choreographed terror that they can impose upon a multinational population within Saudi Arabia, to include Americans. I I remind my American friends that Houthi missiles don't turn left and right over the head of someone holding a blue passport. So the Saudis themselves believe that is possible. For the Emirates, I think it's less so, but uh, the region is seeing an uptick in cyber attacks from Iran. Iran has declared that it will punish particularly Saudi Arabia for uh, what it believes to be Saudi's support of a highly successful television station known as Iran International, based in London. There's a bit of irony there uh, in that Iran has for years broadcast in Arabic, its other foreign language broadcast, incendiary television from Tehran, and they have funded Lebanese Hezbollah's El Manar television against the entire region. But now they're claiming... This is an inciting protest, and they must respond against the kingdom. So there is certainly a sense in the region that Iran is capable and likely to conduct some form of violence, particularly cyber, particularly doing so through proxies to deny a an immediate source of blame, doing this in a way that they believe, uh, or to a level that they believe the international community will accept the attacks on Abqaiq. The uh, uh, did not see a robust military response and also operating within a dynamic where China and Russia are unusual players in the region. And some of your viewers may have heard that regional leaders were not impressed with the slow speed that they believed that the Biden administration employed while responding to the attacks on Abu Dhabi. In fairness to the Biden administration, uh, the Chinese have never responded. The Russians have never responded. So it may have taken us three weeks to send F-22s and a variety of other assets to the region to protect these countries. But China has done nothing except say, we're happy to trade with you and the Iranians. And the Russians have done done the same thing. So the Gulf states live in, um, in an unusual world. And it's a challenging one, but I can tell you from visiting two extraordinarily well-attended conferences and um, finance and energy and meeting 
probably close to 15 ministers and security chiefs for some one-on-one or very small group private sessions. Uh, They're quite confident in their future, and they believe the U.S. regional relationship will be sustained through what they see as a difficult period. Well, this has been a fascinating update on a very important topic. I want to thank my old friend and former colleague, Norm Rule, for coming back on the program again. And the way things are going in the world, Norm, we may need to have you back yet once again, uh, depending on how things develop. You're very kind. Thank you for the opportunities to uh, speak with you again, Jim. Thank you. 